Welcome to Naming It, where we discuss pop culture, current events, and how they relate to the way that we live our lives, all through the lens of two black psychologists. Naming It is dedicated to acknowledging the elephant in the room, validating the lived experience of people of color. Coming to you from the Bay Area, California, we thank you for joining us. I'm Dr. Bedford Palmer. And I'm Dr. Lamisha Hill. Music on Naming It is provided by Lee England Jr., the sole violinist. Good morning, evening, afternoon. Yeah. Welcome to Naming It, y'all. Welcome to Naming It. It's episode number 58. 58. That's, uh, man, we're getting up there in the numbers, aren't we? Yeah, we are making our way. Yeah. How you doing today? I'm all right. My allergies are starting to bother me. You know, yeah. I was reading somewhere that this part of the Bay Area, we're like in Contra Costa County, right? Uh-huh. Um, and that this part has really, really bad allergies in comparison to like moving closer towards Oakland or Alameda County. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I think it's because we're on the other side of the hills right now. Mm-hmm. Like the water, the breeze and stuff off the ocean will move stuff out. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. The earth tries to kill us all the time in very different, various <laughs> different ways. Yeah. Uh, you know. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Yeah. yeah. Trying, to, trying to stay focused, you know. Okay. okay. Keep, keep moving. Okay. So you did something new this week. I did do something new. I did yeah. an interview all by myself. Yay! Cue the music. So we're gonna get. I don't, I don't get... have no music. Oh, oh. I'm sorry. Really? No, I got I got a lot of music, but I thought that was funny. <laughs> um, Look at him, y'all. Yeah. So you went and you did you did a real talk. We got the real talk coming. Mm-hmm. Um, who'd you interview again? I interviewed one of my colleagues, Don Woodson, who's the director of the Center for Science and Education Outreach at UCSF. All right, so we're going to get to that in a while, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll come back and we're going to talk about some stuff with that. But uh, for now, uh, you got any shout-outs? I sure do not. I gave a shout-out to my friend last time because it was her birthday. Uh-huh. Nope. nope. Nobody? Nope. Okay. Well, I got a shout-out. I got a shout-out to all the Dungeons & Dragons players out there. The what? Uh, no, you don't get to... I explained it to you, so don't pretend like you don't know what it is. Uh, Dungeons Dungeon & Dragons... Uh, everybody knows what Dungeons & Dragons no, is. No, everyone does not yes, know what Dungeons do. & Dragons I, I, is. Well, I can't be true. responsible for miseducation of people, you know what I'm saying? Well, like, then you can't make a, a broad sweeping claim that everybody I, I, knows or should know what it is. Well, apparently I did, so I can. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So anyway... I mean, but it's it's been popularized. I mean, SNL just did like a crappy skit about it. But like, why are you so? Why are you hurt about the SNL? I'm skit? not hurt by it. It was just. It, I mean, it was just that whole like nerd kind of. I don't know. It's. It, 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 I think I wasn't hurt. There's a whole movement. There's a whole like uh, trend that started because SNL made a skit and it made it seem like people who play D and D are all like, like these weird socially awkward people who can't interact in the office. Like basically the stereotype of like what the nerd is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're past that. We're past that stereotype um, in general. And to kind of go back to that trope and try to like essentialize all these folks, it, it was it was irritating. To, and so people came out and and had a lot of clever selfies. I did one. Uh, mm-hmm. So if y'all go and find, uh, you know, DRBF Palmer on Instagram or on uh, Twitter, you can see my little D and D selfie with my twenty uh, sided die. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the thing. Dungeons and Dragons is dope. It's like this cool. Like if you play any kind of role playing game on on a computer where you have to like do puzzles and do go on adventures and do stuff like that. This is where that comes from. Mm-hmm. And the cool part about the original Dungeon and Dragon is that you're playing with other people and a lot of it has to do with your creativity. So you're not you're not stuck, you know, following the the guidelines of the computer. Which you know, you know, it, it has like limited choices. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're playing with the dungeon master, which is basically instead of a computer, you got a friend who's like running the story. Mm-hmm. Then you can do really cool stuff. And yeah, it's not graphically shown to you on a computer, but guess what? We have this kind of cool thing called an imagination. You know, so 
you can picture things in your own head and you can use stories and narrative. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I think it's dope. I actually uh, have been part of a game for like uh, more um, close. It's like two years now. Wow. Same game. Uh, and we call it PhD&D. Because okay. everybody involved is like, you know, it's not, there's a lot, there's a high number of people with PhDs in the group. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, we do that every, every other Sunday and it's fun. So, That's real cool. Yeah. So the, the one thing that I can re- relate to uh, and connect with on, even though I, I have no familiarity with D&D, however, I think that essentially, I think that when there are the stereotypes and the, and the tropes that have made, this is a longstanding game. This game's been out for how long? I don't know. It's since the fifties, at least. Wow. Yeah. I I wasn't even gonna guess that. Long. Yeah. That's a really long time. So in essence, if you make a characteristic and you make a stereotype about something that essentially uh, has over time evolved to be more inclusive, to be more accessible, uh, to allow people to participate and build relationships, make those connections, and find space and meaning for themselves in in this process and in this create creative space, I do think that it's problematic to like try to go back and say that. This is like very boxed in and it represents only like, you know, a small, tiny subset of the population and that people can't see themselves in it. So then it it really uh, invalidates it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I don't think it was ever kind of I think it was always an open thing. I think people didn't like I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. When it first came out, people thought that I mean, there was a lot of stereotypes about it being like devil worship and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And so it got marginalized. So. It's it's basically a, a kind of entertainment that's been marginalized in the past. And then, like, it's been going through this renaissance where all the marginalization has been falling away and mm-hmm. a lot of mainstream people play it. Mm-hmm. And then I think the thing is that SNL, they mar- they try to they push it back like they were trying to push it back into the margins with their thing. And, you know, I, I like SNL and they tend to do good stuff. But it was like, well, what's the point of this? Like, it seemed like the writers there were being jerks basically that's how it felt it was like you know sometimes comedy can be really funny and then sometimes it's like well that was kind of jerky Mm -hmm. and you know i i i understand you know you don't critique art blah 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 but of course you critique art so um you know maybe they'll come out with a a reply to the selfie thing and and make it all funny and stuff too but the the first one wasn't as great as it could have been anyway um so that's a lot on D&D. I didn't mean that. I just wanted to shout out people. Um, so are we ready to get into what's going on? Sure. Go ahead and play the jams. All right. So go ahead. Y'all do that. What's going on? Hey. No, we no. What's going on? You just click that and use that for the rest of the time. <laughs> so there is a number of things that's happening right now this time of the year, but we wanted to to pause and give some acknowledgement to the hate crimes and the tragedies that have been happening in Louisiana over the last 10 days. A series of 10 historically black churches have been burned by arsonists. Well, by an art. Well, you know, it's, it's by this one dude, as far as we know right now, he's mm-hmm. like the son of a deputy um in in louisiana um but yeah so these three churches were being burned you know it was all over the news and these aren't the first churches to be burned in even in the last few years like there's a thing about white supremacists burning churches right um and that's something that i think we have to continue to remind the public and the listeners who may not have that historical memory and knowledge of the ways in which the terrorization of black people in the south because they receive so much community um, from their church spaces that white supremacists would enter those spaces and target those spaces as a means to create harm was well, yeah i mean it's been an un, uninterrupted um series of these type of things forever um, I mean, like, since, you know, black people had churches in the U.S., um, I mean, that's what happened with, um, you know, the shooter who took out the who, who came in and, and murdered those people in um, in South Carolina, mm-hmm. you know, and there's been church bombings. There was a church bombing that happened in the in the South that killed the four little girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just been like this, like they there is a thing about white supremacists attacking black churches. Uh, black churches are the center of civil rights. Black churches like tend to be like where black people meet and congregate in order to like move forward movements, mm-hmm. you know. And 
Um, so it, it's it's both a political and an existential attack. You know, it's saying you're, there's nowhere that you're safe. Mm-hmm. Um, you, there's nowhere where, where where we can't touch you. Um, we don't we don't hold to the social mores that everyday people normally would. Churches, from a European perspective, churches are supposed to be sanctuaries. You know, so when if you if you kind of look in history, like monarchs and despots would stop and not and 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 end their 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 trying to grab someone if they made it through the threshold of a church, mm-hmm. right? So kings and queens and whatever wouldn't come after you. The sheriff wouldn't come after you. All that stuff if you got into the church. And what they're saying is, we don't care about church. Like God can't save you. Right. That's that's really the message that that comes from white supremacists around this. And so when we just see it on the news, people need to understand, like, exactly what's what's happening here. And I mean, that's what happened with Christchurch. Right. Like Mm -hmm. like it's they'll go into a mosque and kill up people. They'll go into a Sikh, a Sikh um, temple and kill people. Mm -hmm. They'll go into a synagogue and kill people. And it's the same people who do this. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's like the same group of people It's white supremacists white nationalists and there i mean if this was happening if this was if it was brown people going around burning white edifices like this like we'd be in a national crisis i mean if you remember there was a sniper the dc sniper mm-hmm. do going around two two black men going around shooting white folks when white people are getting killed suddenly it's like this crazy thing and everything has to stop Whole city stop. Right. Right. When breaking news. Yeah. National but, emergency. Right. But when it, when it's when it's not white people, you know, suddenly it, it can be back page. Right. Because mm-hmm. most of the people who are listening, you might not even know about these churches being burned down. And I'm not saying it's your fault. I'm saying that the media just doesn't cover it. Right. Yeah. And one thing that I wanted to add, you know, knowing, thinking from my own lived experience and my family being from the South, you know, these small churches that are in these small towns are really a historical and, um, and a really important figure. It's one of the few markers that that sort of exists in a visible way to let you know that something was here, something is still here, right? And so if you have a way to remove that that symbol and that physical presence, it is such an erasure of history and of legacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why, I mean, the, the word that comes to mind is cornerstone. You know, like the cornerstone is a piece of the, the it's supposed to be the, the most strong part of the foundation of a building and the churches tend to be the cornerstone of these communities mm-hmm. and like you said making those disappear is is it's erasing not just them but like possibly the whole community because right. where are the people going to go mm-hmm. you know um uh the suspect that they have in is is uh holden matthews and he is the son of um a saint landry parish sheriff deputy um, apparently, the sheriff's deputy helped uh, apprehend him, and everyone's saying that they weren't involved. Uh, and so, you know, it is what it is. But it, 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 it I mean, what does that mean? I'm not going to speculate, but it, it, you know, as a black person, hearing that a sheriff's son did something like this, uh, yeah, I'm just going to leave it out there. Well, this side, and we just want for our listeners to just know, you know, the importance of of these um, situations, and um, really take the time to reflect and feel and hear um, the tragedy that really surrounds us in a lot of ways. Yeah. So, um, what else is going on? Well, it's mid-April. Yep. And it's so when y'all, you know, this episode will come out on tax day. Uh-huh. So it will come out on tax day. Yeah. So taxes, y'all. Taxes. Um, these new these new taxes, these Trump taxes, yo. Um, <laughs> no, for real. Say like, it. It's it's bad. It's bad out there. A lot of people are getting surprised by how much they owe because they changed the tax laws. Yes, they know? did significantly in a way that impacts so many individuals who you know do their best to make a living in the day. Well, yeah. I mean, it. You know, when when I, I think a lot of folks don't pay attention to these kind of shifts because you know a lot of us don't understand the tax code anyway. You mm-hmm. know, um, I think what folks, if you're what people are starting to feel right now, and I think that 
people who are against who who are not Trump supporters already knew. I think the people who are getting surprised surprised are the Trump supporters who thought that they were somehow going to be immune to this dude's crazy. You know, so if you ain't making money, if you don't have your own business to run your money through, you in trouble right now. Like because the business tax rate is low. It's like 21% or something like that. And so if you have a corporation, 21%. If you have a regular job, mm-hmm. like anybody with it's a regular job, you know what I'm saying? Like you and I, everybody who's like got a W-2, that's the top on that is 30, 35%, mm-hmm. right? So now me and you are working the same amount of hours as somebody who's working their own private practice or something like that. But our taxes are different, even if we're making the same money, because they can run theirs through a corporation. And you might think, oh, everyone should just run and do corporations. But like and like, for instance, I have a private practice, so I do have a corporation. Some of my money goes through that. Not everybody can do that. Corporation one starting a corporation costs money. Like it's it, in California to start a, a LLC. I think it's like eight hundred dollars just to like start it to put the paperwork through and same with like other corporations but you also got to get a lawyer to to help you with that and an accountant to help you with that if you're going to do it correctly because mm-hmm. people will tell you you can just fill out the paperwork but that's a good way to get yourself in trouble right then you got to have people help you with your taxes and all this other stuff that goes with there's a lot of expenses you got to be making money for a corporation to make sense mm-hmm. right if you're just doing the american dream right like if you're doing what the new deal said like go get you a house Find, you know, find a partner, get a house, have a good job. Everything will be okay. Nah, homie, (laughs) it's not because you like right now you might have been thinking, oh, every time, you know, my taxes, I'm able to put the house. I can I can put the house and write that off and I can uh, put these these loans and write this off and I can do this and write this off and itemize all your taxes. Nope. Not anymore, nope. because those itemizations have been like made less important, and now everyone's just taking like the standard, mm-hmm. and the standard's not that great. Nope. You know, so it it's um it's a big impact for people. Yeah. Uh, particularly if folks you know historically have received you know a a refund and mm-hmm. have used that in whatever ways that they needed to, and sort of have banked on that to support them you know, throughout the year for mm-hmm. people who um, are not used to p- having to pay, right, mm-hmm. or being in a different mm-hmm. position and then having to pay, like, you know, you got to mm-hmm. come up with that money and it doesn't yeah. come out of thin air. So it is a is a really big impact on a really large percentage of everyday working folk. Right. And, and, and I think the impact that people don't pay attention to or that we don't talk about when you talk about finances is that, there's this huge amount of stress that comes around having to pull that money out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's if you if you have if you have if you make a six figure amount of money and you put away money so that you like have savings and stuff like that, which it takes a while to get to that point if you're not already way up in there. Um, then having to pay a few extra thousand dollars or even like ten extra thousand dollars because it can be a lot depending mm-hmm. on what's going on. Um, may not be like a make or break situation but if you were like me up until very recently um i don't have no extra money there's no like savings account there's debt and like there's there's expense you know what i mean and you you like you said people are waiting for that like that Mm -hmm. that refund to come through and part of their finances are are dependent on that Uh you know and so now you have people who are basically i mean this stuff is messing with people's relationships Mm -hmm. you know it's it's like messing with marriages it's like bringing people who were on the cusp of depression and anxiety to full-blown attacks because i mean there's you you can't do anything to fix not having money you know it's one of those things where it's just like if you don't have it you just don't have it and bad stuff happens in 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 relation to that and i also want to add i feel like there is a little bit of preying on you know the the good nature of a lot of folks who want to support their communities and who want to contribute to infrastructure and schools and whatever else we feel like our taxes should go to right Mm -hmm. so i think that you know this idea that you know I think there was some statistic that like the majority of folks like actually don't lie on their taxes because I think that there is this value of, yeah, I want to give back. I want to uh, support the things that are around me that are also supportive of me. 
but I don't want to be robbed in the, in the process of that. And I don't want to be exploited and taken advantage of. And I feel like these tax changes are exploiting and taking advantage of people who, you know, you know, in a lot of ways probably do go, you know, above and beyond and contribute to their communities and pay taxes on a number of different things, whether it's from buying something at the store or, you know, tipping somebody in a, in a restaurant. Yeah. And I, I don't think that I don't think it's a matter about lying on taxes. Like, I think, I mean, that's tax fraud, right? So people aren't doing that. Like, I think that it, it's a matter of, like, being able to have the resources to utilize loopholes. Like, if you look, if you kind of go and look at the way that the tax code works, the more, it, there's places where people put money. Mm-hmm. If you are at the lower end of the tax bracket, you put money in your pocket and you put money in your mattress and you put money in a savings, a regular savings account, you might you might have a 401k, you know, you you'll have these little spaces. All of those spaces have high tax liabilities. Like, you know, so like when you're making your money coming in, again, 35% W2, they're gonna take it on the front end, they're gonna take it on the back end. Um, but if you say have a corporation and you have a business, whether it's small or large, then suddenly your tax bracket goes down like so the highest they take out is 21 percent right which is like oh that's a huge amount of money that you're saving but you have to have infrastructure and stuff like that if you go above that you're talking about millionaires and stuff like that those people one they sit on their money and they use interest right and that stuff isn't taxed right the their property might be taxed and that kind of stuff but like generally their money is in other spaces and is sheltered away from taxes and if you really get into it the way that a lot of people make money at that point is through investments those get taxed at like 10 and 15 percent mm-hmm. right so the more money you have and the more money you're moving because you might be moving like a million dollars you know and getting like a million dollars in dividends so this person who's making a million dollars off of their their stock is paying 15 percent on that million dollars, this person at Arby's who's making like minimum wage is paying the full on. They're they're going through that whole thirty five percent tax tax bracket, mm-hmm. and I mean I think that that's the thing that like you know separates stuff, and that's what Trump did. He flipped everything so that the the people who make the who have the most money are are having the least tax liability, and it's super bare. It's super just in your face now. Right. Um, but you know, you know who else is a millionaire? Mm, I, I just, think it's related to some of our campaign 2020 updates. Yeah. Like, uh, so apparently somebody's taxes came in and, um, uh, they got money, yo. Hmm. Talking about that, uh, feel the burn burning, homie. Uh, you got, You're not you got feeling Bernie. Bernie but... No, I'm not feeling <laughs> Bernie because Bernie ain't feeling me. Um, like real talk. I mean, like, so he comes out. Um, I remember, see, this is the thing. This is why you got to remember longer than, like, the last news cycle. Mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders, his he's been keeping this tax return secret since back in the last campaign, right? He, he was talking—he wanted Hillary to release all kinds of stuff. And then she was like, release your taxes. He never released his taxes, you know? And so— that you're like, why does he need to release his tax? The same reason why why Trump does, and same reason why anybody, all the candidates are supposed mm-hmm. to really do that. But when you're a person who talks about like your whole your your entire like platform is about economic justice, and you don't want us to know where you get your money from and how much money you got, I'm sorry, like that makes me not trust you. Right. And now we find out, which I mean, I think it's it 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 doesn't surprise me that this dude from Vermont who's been in Congress for his whole life. He's a million dollar. He's a millionaire. Um, but then his response when people the response asked him, was just pitiful. I mean, what did he say? He was just like, you know, he oh, he said, if you write a best selling book, you can be a millionaire too. Right. And I was like, that sounds a lot like Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean, it just I I my thing with Bernie is I don't care how much money he makes. I see all these people as rich people. You can't really get into American politics without being rich. It's very hard um, to the to the point of impossibility. Um, the thing is that the dude and it's the same reason I have a problem with AOC. It's the same reason I have a problem with a lot of folks. It's like, look, I want the best for my constituency. Mm-hmm. My constituency right now, the one that I identify the most with is people of African descent. 
you know, in the United States, particularly African-Americans specifically. And so I don't begrudge anybody else their stuff. Like, I want everybody to get the best, but nobody is advocating for us. So we have to advocate for ourselves. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 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 Malcolm X said it in the ballot versus ballot or the bullet. You know, he's like, you have to you have to advocate for yourself just like everybody else and you can't you can't be mad at other people mm-hmm. for what they're doing as long as you're doing what you need to do the thing is that people get mad at us people get mad like oh how dare you not support this so-and-so person right. I'm like but they don't support me why right. should i support someone who doesn't support me and you know someone else who didn't support us who's that biden Ooh, we're getting deep. We're getting deep because yeah. because as you mentioned, Bedford, it's like you do you don't have like to, Uncle Biden. You got to go b- before the last recent news cycle, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. Biden has been in politics for a very long time, and he's being called to to take. Well, I wouldn't say he's taking any responsibility or accountability, but a lot of his past political decisions and behaviors are coming into question. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he not only supported but sponsored was anti-busing leagues, uh, anti-busing legislation mm-hmm. uh, to address segregation in segregated schools. Yeah. So didn't want didn't want black and poor people coming to the white schools. No. Nope. Uh, white affluent schools. Yeah. I mean, not he in also, Scranton, Ohio. Yeah. Where are you from? Yeah, 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 right. So I mean, like, you know, and and we can get in a lot of. Was I mean, it Biden, Pennsylvania? I don't. Yeah, it's Scranton, but it, I I might have gotten the state wrong. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm saying. Okay, so uh, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I I think you know because he had stuff with Anita Hill. You mm-hmm. know, he has this apparently he be putting his hand on the wrong place on women and touching women too much and so he had to apologize for that he ain't even yeah. came out I don't I hope I'm thinking he shouldn't come out um, but you know it's just interesting to me when we think about like the people who are out there right now there's a lot of focus on Bernie there's a lot of focus on um, on Biden there's a lot of focus on Beto mm-hmm. um, and I'm sorry, but these folks and I. Just, I was looking at a thing on Beto. He wrote it. He voted for uh, a thin blue line uh, law that had particular uh, penalties for for if you had violence towards police. Like that's another. Like when you when you connect that thin blue line stuff, mm-hmm. like it's like oh, so you know. Anyway, what I'm getting at is there's a lot of like white men in the race who are getting a lot of attention when there are a lot of women and people of color um and and uh and one one member of the LGBTQIA community who seem to have much more substance and seem to be less conflicted you know um i personally think that you know we're looking at like uh, the best case scenarios are like some combination of Elizabeth Warren and like uh, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker. Like I'm, those are those are the people in my in my area. Uh, but um, we'll see. I, I think we wait till the debates and then see what happens. Because I think when we get to the debates, it's really just going to be about Kamala and um, and about uh, Warren. I I I I. I you don't think Cory's going to be up there? I think he'll be up there, but I don't think he'll be up there. I don't think I, I like Cory. I like Cory Booker, but when you put Warren and Kamala together on the stage with him, I think he's going to have to like look and say, "I wonder who I'm going to be vice president to," mm-hmm. because those are two, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, they're they're strong. Absolutely, they're real strong. So more to come, more yeah. to come. Yeah. So I look forward to having our campaign twenty twenty updates. Yeah, yeah. On some future episodes. So are we, uh, we ready for your your real talk debut? Yeah, let's get into real talk. So I had a chance to sit down with Don Woodson, who serves as the director for the UCSF Center for Science and Education and Outreach. CSEO works with K-16 through students, their parents, school representatives, and community members to design, implement, and evaluate programs and services that foster students' academic development to support college readiness. All right, let's listen to this uh, Real Talk 101, see what's going on. Awesome. All right, everyone, this is Real Talk. This is Lamisha. I am here with Don Woodson, who is the director for the Center for Science and Educational Outreach at UCSF. Hey, Don. Hey, how's it going, Lamisha? Nice to be here. Thank you. I appreciate it. 
Awesome. So um, I, I shared with our listeners, you know, your bio and just want for you to tell us more, a little bit more about who you are, your work and um, how it aligns with social justice. Yeah. So thanks a lot. You know, I appreciate being here. Um, I think this is a great venue. I love social justice. That's uh, that's what my background is in. Um, that's what my education, my formal education is in. Um, and so a lot of the work that we do, you know, I really believe is uh, a companion to social justice. Um, you know, we do a lot of work getting students to think a little more about um, what do they want to do with themselves? Um, a little more about how do they want to present themselves? A little more about, you know, what do I need to motivate myself to be able to do something? Mm-hmm. Um, so our programs that we are, are designed to inform students, um, to motivate students, and to provide students with resources to be able to see themselves moving forward in the future. But, you know, not just students, but, you know, families are a big component of that. Mm-hmm. So when I think of the information that is needed for a student and their family to progress, um, information is key. Um, because the, knowing the information, but also knowing your options leads to you making better decisions, but also leads to you knowing what your rights are. It leads mm. to knowing what your power is, and it leads to knowing how to trigger your power when you need to trigger it. Wow. Can you give just an example of that um, in terms of knowing what your rights and your power and, and how people can really maximize and leverage that once they are, have, are more empowered and have that knowledge? Absolutely. So I think when, when we're talking to a lot of young people in high school, um, a lot of them just don't feel that they have the power to say anything. Um, and a part of that is because they're not sure themselves what they want to do or who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, through these programs, being able to show students um, and to model for students uh, what are different avenues in life um, allows them to be a little more confident of ensure not only about themselves, but about something that's happening in the future. Um, and when you can see a future for yourself, there's a certain natural confidence that starts to come, um, as well as when you see yourself moving towards that path. And our students, once they see themselves moving towards that path, they have a much better sense of self Um, And that begins to develop into a curiosity to know more. And that curiosity develops into a a positive path for them to be able to feel comfortable speaking up and saying something if need be. Right. And so something about the programs that uh, you all offer through CSEO that I find to be really, I think, powerful is that they are actually implemented in a number of the the Bay Area middle and high schools. You'll have staff presence of these schools. Uh, The students get a chance to really get to get connected with the program leaders and other members of your team. Um, In addition to, you know, some of the summer camps and the other things that you might do, maybe uh, a couple times a year presentations or whatnot. But the programmatic perspective, building that relationship, um, I find to be really powerful. Absolutely. So we we've we've intentionally um, shifted our model to be more embedded in schools, mm-hmm. um, because once you're a part of the school, not only do the students start to see you as a, a, a resource, but they trust you. Um, and I think the key is, is that building that trust in that relationship with the students so that they can allow themselves to hear what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you, if that trust is not built, you know, students, you'll say something, the students will hear you and they'll listen to you, but that doesn't mean that they fully, fully hear what you're saying. Um, once you build that trust with the students, then they, they now not only hear it, listen to it, but now they come back with questions, mm-hmm. right? And they trust the response that they're receiving. So being at the schools, embedded at schools, intentional in the work um, at the schools um, is, is a very valuable and critical part of the work that we do. 
And so overall, Don, how long have you been supporting uh, students in their journey to higher education and college? Boy, you really want to tell the, the time? <laughs> <laughs> I guess, well, I only <laughs> Why are you putting me out on that? <laughs> no, only because I really want listeners to know how much of an expert, like, uh, you've been doing this for a really long time. Because when I yeah. ask you the next question, it's going to be real relevant. I, so it's it's been a little over 25 years. Wow. 25 yeah. years in knowing and understanding how to get students, particularly underrepresented, underserved yeah. students, into a college journey and on, on their career and academic trajectory. That's correct. So when the Operation Varsity Blues scandal <laughs> broke, which you know is centered, I'm sure many listeners know, but this is about business leaders, wealthy individuals, yes. celebrities and parents uh, engaging in fraudulent behaviors from you know paying for their students to be diagnosed with a disability, to be able to get extended time on an exam with a rigged proctor, yep. um, to just giving large donations to different places, falsifying uh, ac- academic and athletic backgrounds, Absolutely. all kinds of stuff that they did yep. to get their kids into school. How, what did you? What was your response to it? Um, honestly, it was. I was thinking, well, this has been going on for <laughs> I don't know how long, and how is this the first time that it has been majorly prosecuted? I mean, it, it is it is not a surprise to anyone I think who's been in the business. Um, and but I think what was what was really interesting about it to me was just looking at how much it doesn't really make sense. Um, because when I think about the students of these wealthy individuals that are paying these individuals that are paying for their kids to go to these, these certain institutions, you know, going to those institutions to me is not so much about the, the education, right? So, I mean, calculus is calculus, right? But the most important thing are the resources and connections that these institutions hold. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you are already the CEO of X company, if you're already a famous actor, if you already um, are millionaires plus, you have the connections. Mm-hmm. So, to pay millions of dollars for your child to get into X institution. Um, it, I, I, I have to admit, I kind of giggle at that because it was ridiculous, but it also is something that's sad because it demonstrates again, over and over again, it demonstrates the, the privilege, mm-hmm. you know, that individuals have and the influence that individuals have due to the almighty dollar. Mm, 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 mm. Almighty dollar. There's a song. I should interlude it right there. I tell uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> for folks that know it, you, you know it right now. So the thing, one of the things that I think people started to kind of question, and, and we're here in California, and so there's, there's two things that I kind of want to ask. Mm-hmm. The first question I want to ask is, how is this any different from uh, you know, elite institutions that hold, you know, anywhere from 10 to 40% of their, um, yearly enrollment to legacy, legacy. large yeah. donors yep. um, and those types of slots. How is this, how is the situation any different? Like, couldn't they have just wrote that check straight to the institution and gotten their kid into college? So that's why I was saying this has been going on in multiple, and what I wanted to allude to, this has been going on in multiple different ways, Mm -hmm. um, needs to say. So, you know, you hit it right on the nose, you know, the the, the legacy aspect of it. And if you are looking at Harvard and Yale and all these institutions, we know the legacy is not necessarily um, supporting or helping, you know, uh, students of color because the legacy has not been students of color. So we know how that continues. Um, The other issue is, you know, we have seen over the years, over the years, not only with legacy, but just again, the, the, the dollar, if you can put your name on a building, you can pretty much guarantee your kids for generations are going to go to that school. Mm -hmm. All right. So 
Um, now, how is that different from paying? Well, I mean, honestly, I don't really see it that much different. Mm-hmm. Um, I really don't. I think it's just a different way. It's almost the difference between, you know, white collar crimes and, you know, crimes from uh, uh, your blue collar crimes, I guess. So, right. it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's really the same thing. They just call it something different and make an excuse for the other thing. Right. Right. So meanwhile, there's this whole other kind of side issue that's happening, particularly among um, I know that there's a lawsuit right now um, pending with Harvard and probably some other institutions really related to underrepresented minorities, particularly of Asian descent, feeling like the admissions process discriminates against them. And then they end up, which is which happens in a lot of communities of color, that you look to the other person of color and you feel like that person is taking something space or now I need to argue with this person over here who is another black or brown person or similar to me in my background or my struggle, as opposed to really looking at the larger systemic issue. Can you spell some myths around, around that whole um, process regarding disproportionality, particularly among students of a certain background. And if you can speak to the API issue. Well, I think there's, there's, uh, it's it's and you I think you hit it actually right that it is a more deeper issue, um, and you know there was that saying a long time ago about the divide and conquer kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, and unfortunately we consistently buy into it, um, and it becomes that battle you know between one group against another group without seeing the whole picture of what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Um, when you do look at um, the Asian Pacific Islander group, um, you know, they worked hard, too. You know, so, you know, it's, it's hard to turn and look at that group and say, well, you shouldn't. They've worked hard. Um, but that doesn't mean that other groups have not as well. Um, and when you begin to look at the systemic uh, racism um, from a lot of these institutions, um, that has purposefully held back particularly um, black and brown students, um, there needs to be something that's done. Um, And so when you have institutions that are saying, we want to allow um, our campus to be better enriched um, with the various cultures and races that make up our, uh, our country and our world, but also, that allows the campus to acknowledge the fact that we have purposefully um, discriminated against these groups um, in the past, and we are looking for ways to change that. Right. So we are here in California, and I'm not originally from California, but I uh, started working in the university system and was quickly learned and was informed about the impact of Proposition 209 and affirmative action or lack thereof with uh, the college admissions process for students. For our listeners, can you explain what that is? Um, What what was Prop 209? What is affirmative action when it comes to admissions? And what is the actual practice? So really what what 209 did is it it made the, the university system eliminate race as a base for admissions. It basically said you cannot consider um, race or ethnicity, any of that stuff when it comes to admissions. So in turn of what that has done though, um, the result of that has been a complete downturn in the way that, um, you know, of African-American admissions into the university. Not that there are no, exceptional African-American students, you know, and Latino students that are applying. It's just that, you know, students felt that that was almost a betrayal and applied other places. Mm -hmm. Um, But when we look at what Prop 209 um, has really done is it has set the universities back to me um, from the work that was being done before. Um, completely set it back. And so now the universities are trying to do things such as the University of California's holistic review, um, 
looking at the diminishing um, the diminishing importance of uh, test scores. Um, so there are a number of things that the university is attempting to do to make up for uh, what Prop 209 took away. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that got to your question, but if you yeah yeah no it, it definitely did, and I think that in in combining it with what you said before about the fact that these institutions have historically demonstrated a pattern of exclusion. Exactly. Um, when they made efforts to make that correction and make their doors more accessible and more open, in comes, you know, policy prop 209. Exactly. That right. it shut. And in such a way that, you know, you know, on the back end, and I have, you know, somewhat way more limited experience with this, but something simple as, you know, I want to give a student of color a financial support. Absolutely right. You can't do that. That's absolutely correct. It will one of the things or or to do it in this roundabout, like, oh, this is for, you know, the absolutely right. uh, first generation or um, students that are from the Central Valley or, you know, you could probably figure out like some of these loopholes, but then you're making proxies based on race and ethnicity. Absolutely. But what we know for certain is that these institutions have historically excluded and discriminated against people of color. That's 100% correct. And and one other thing that was, and you, you kind of alluded to this, is that, you know, it makes it very difficult to outreach to students. Mm-hmm. Because we know that there are certain communities that um, that need some really sustained and personalized um, outreach, um, but when you call it what it is, we can't call it what it is. We we you kind of as you said, we have to go on these roundabout type ways to be able to explain it, and unfortunately, those communities. Um, are the ones that are not benefiting from that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, you're, you're absolutely correct. So as we wind down this, this conversation, before we shift gears, yes. when it comes to Operation Varsity Blues or any of the college admission scandals, um, is there, do you, would you like to name any elephant in the room or something that isn't being said about the isms that are operating? Well, it's, it's, it's what I said, I think, a little bit earlier, which is... Um, you know, and I don't know if it really is an elephant because um, what we really notice is that, you know, all the things that we had before, legacy and all that stuff, it's, it's the same thing to me. And so, but that's not being said. Um, I don't really hear a lot about, you know, what, within the frame of what is happening now within the scandal, no, I don't hear a lot about the legacy. I don't hear a lot about, uh, you know, big donors you know, and, and that aspect of it. I'm not hearing that. Um, and I think that that starts to pose a little more of an embarrassment and starts to shine a, a bigger light on that privilege. Um, and so that's, that's the thing I, I don't hear. And I want to hear more about that. I want that to be a part of that discussion. Because if it's not, then I don't see how there's going to be a fix. Right. Right. Absolutely. So shifting into, you know, the practical process for our listeners, um, tips and tricks, you know, you've been in the business for a really long time. What are some maybe like a couple top mistakes that uh, either students and or families make when approaching the college admission process or the journey in general? So I I think the one, the, the, the first thing is not really understanding the the importance of good grades, right? And just really working as hard as they can in the classroom, right? Mm -hmm. Just making that the priority, the classroom. The second part would be um, really not doing their research on the schools, right? And the options, informing themselves and getting themselves informed about the options that you have, Mm -hmm. right? the, the number one way that students choose their schools is through their friends. <laughs> and they may not have any idea of what that school is even about, but they just heard a friend talk about it. Um, so in that school may not be for them. So doing their research, once they start doing the research, then they have a better understanding of, okay, so if I do want to attend this institution, here are the things that I need to do, Right. So that's the other part. The other component of it is know what 
in, in California, there's something called A through G. Um, and it's the, the important classes that you take in high school that would allow you to have all of the academic components ready to go to college. Mm. So the understand what the A through G classes and coursework is for your high school. They are very specific to the student's high school. So if from day one, walking into that school in ninth grade, that student and family should already know what the A through G courses are that they will need to take. So that what that does is it takes the power away from the school and puts it into the hands of the family because now they know exactly the classes that are needed to go to college. So that's important. So let me ask you a follow-up question. So if I was a high school student enrolling in uh, a Bay Area high school, wouldn't um, I naturally graduate with all the A through G course requirements? Wouldn't that be a given? No. So there are some school districts that are A through G uh, default, this is the default graduation, but there are a large number that are not. So you are making, you are, you're getting credits to graduate does not always equate to credits that you have or classes that you have taken that will make you eligible to go to college. So wow. that's, that's why that A through G course list is very important. And every counselor at any school should be able to produce that list for the student. Wow. So that is critical. So you mean to tell me that I could go to college and, or excuse me, I can go to high school and graduate from high school, but not be prepared or ready from a prerequisite standpoint to be eligible to apply to college. Unfortunately, that is 100% correct. That is crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and there's, but I will say there's progress towards, towards making, you know, most school districts that way. Um, but it's, it's, it's a tough slog. I know that San Francisco made that effort several years back and, um, you know, it was, it was tough to implement, but obviously it's a, it was a good implementation to do. It was something that needed to happen. All right. So in terms of mistakes, you had highlighted knowing your A through G courses and then knowing what the options actually are when it comes to different colleges, not picking based on name, uh, recency. I know somebody that went to this place. Now I'm getting more information. Absolutely correct. Do your research. You have to do your research. Do your research. Okay. And many, many kids and families, they don't do the research. Now, with that being said, um, you know, if you've never had anyone go to college before, you don't know what I mean when I say do your research, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, so a big part of that is find those individuals at your school. Because remember, a high school counselor's number one job is to make sure that the student graduates, not to make sure that the student goes to college. So it is important for a student to find at that high school those programs or those individuals that are working the college aspect of, of high school mm-hmm. so that they can get that information of how do I do my research? How do I find out information about what, how do I find out what my options are? Right. Um, you know, so those are really, really important components. And I think that, you know, it's a subtle thing that you said, but it makes all the difference that if somebody's primary job is to do A through C, right? And if college readiness is at D, exactly, right. it's not their job. Absolutely. And sometimes they don't feel like it is their job. And well, so their, their goal is to get, particularly for underrepresented students that they don't want to invest time absolutely. and energy into. And I'm sorry, but that that, that is true and accurate. Absolutely. You know, we could query probably a thousand different black and brown and historically underrepresented learners and say, did somebody make a disparaging comment to you along, oh, along your journey or discourage you in any way? And they would say, heck yeah. Oh, I, I'm one of those heck yeahs. <laughs> Do you want to, cause I want to, I want to reflect, you know, a little bit, but tell me, tell me what your experience was as a, oh. as a learner. Oh, so, you know, I was always, I, I was a big, you know, I, I love athletics, right? So, um, I remember going to one of my English teachers in ninth grade and talking to her about, you know, uh, one of the assignments that we had and, and it was, it was, I did a poor job on it. No, no question. I did a poor job on it. And 
she actually said it's 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 okay and i was like well i don't know if it's okay because look at the you know it didn't follow the rubric that she had and it wasn't good and she said it's okay because i don't think you're going to college anyway <laughs> and, and i looked at her and went huh yeah and i it, it, it kind of rolled off my back at that time you know just because i went oh okay and a part of my mind was like, okay, as long as you give me the grade, I don't care, and walked out. But I think the, I heard it when I walked out of there. A part of it was embarrassment. Um, it was I felt ashamed, but I also I was I was sad and didn't know why I was sad, you know. <laughs> um, but it really was just the fact that I it's a realization that she really didn't believe that I can do this. Um, and, and that was the sadness. Right. Absolutely. And then how do you, as you mentioned, like go back to that person when you, when you have that internal feeling that this person is not here for me, they don't believe in me. They don't support me. Even if they have all the resources in the world, you know, students not going to go back to that individual. And that's what happened with me. You know, um, when I was in high school, I went to the college resource center and at this time, you know, it's like when you take one of the, the PSATs or whatnot, you start to get a lot of, um, applications in the mail coming through. Um, and so I was getting a lot of different, you know, high profile schools, uh, coming through the mail and I went into the resource center to check them out, to learn more about them. And I remember, I have no clue who this lady was, uh, can't, can't remember her face, can't remember anything about her because the first and only thing she said to me was basically, why do you even want to apply to all of those schools? why why do you why you're you're not gonna basically you're not gonna get in so why are you even looking at those schools trying and i promptly you know took whatever accessible information that there was and turned my behind and walked out the door i hear you never to return so when i think about you know what was my struggle applying to college of course i didn't have anybody to say oh yeah well here's uh did you hear the applications uh let's review your essays exactly over you know some you know if there's sometimes there's pre-interviews and group interviews let's yep. talk about what that experience is like nobody helped me through that or, or even to go over, over even to go over your transcripts to tell you what are your options mm-hmm. right it's like okay where can i go i don't even right. know where i can go because as soon as the one person who's supposed to be the the resource and the ally, you know, turns their closes the door and, and says you're not you're not worthwhile, you know, there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else. Yeah. So I think that work like yours is so important because students will be getting that, you know, hands-on attention and from a trusting source, someone who's going to support them and encourage them along the way. Absolutely, and that's exactly why we do what we do. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Exactly. So are there any other practical tips and tricks? I know we talked a lot about uh, some some common mistakes, but anything else that you want um, for the listeners or for someone who is starting out the journey to higher education to know? You know, I think just um, find your champion. You know, I think what we were just talking about, you know, there's so many people that try and discourage us. But, you know, there are champions out there, you know, whether it's a coach, whether it be you know, um, uh, a, you know, a a person from a uh, faith-based organization, whether it be the YMCA, whether it be the Boys and Girls Club, whether it be, you know, the, 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 the custodian at your school, right? Find, find that champion who will continue to encourage you Mm -hmm. um, and to continue to try and find ways to connect you with the resources. Right. Awesome. Yeah. So last question that we have for you is related to wellness, you know, naming it. We are two black psychologists. Wellness is always sort of embedded in the work and the landscape of social justice, particularly because, you know, we tend to be folks that give a lot of ourselves to others. So what do you do to take care of yourself? Um, I, I love my family. My, I, my, my, my wife is very supportive and my, my eight year old son just keeps me laughing all the time. Um, so that's a big part of it. Um, you know, while we give a lot, you know, to support the young people and families that are out there, um, I also have to remember that I need to give to my family too. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's, that is what keeps me very, very balanced. 
Um, and there are just little routines that we have um, that just is a reminder of the importance of, of, of being present um, within, within my family. And of course, traveling is really nice and, <laughs> you know, and, and going to see other, other places in the world. You know, yeah, yeah. Like, For our listeners, Don is an, an international, worldwide traveler. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you have a trip planned? Where are you going uh, next? Where are y'all going next as a group? Yeah, well, y'all me, going as a three trio. Yeah, the three three of us are going to be going to Cambodia in December. Um, so we're excited about that. Wonderful. Yeah. Well. Um, I will totally ask for you to share any, do you have a, is, unless I'm going to ask you, actually I just ask you right now, is yeah. there like a website or one of like your favorite online resources for college and, you know, navigating the, the system? So I do, I, 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 a site that I tend to tell students about is called californiacolleges.edu. Okay. Yeah, it's it's what it's one of my favorite sites just because it it helps students in so many different ways, whether it be scholarship stuff, um, you know, profiles for certain schools. Um, but I think it's a really good place to start, um, and then you can progress from there easily. Oh, you know, I cannot let you go without asking this question because yeah. you mentioned scholarships. Um, can you talk a little bit about the money and <laughs> and because the, the the thought and the assumption that I have is that the sticker price often people uh, look at that as a gatekeeper and yep. think that they shouldn't apply and that they can't afford it so they don't bother. Yeah. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about about the money and how people should really approach thinking about financing and navigating the cost of, of higher ed? Yeah. I, so I think the first thing is to quickly understand and recognize you're going to have to take out some loans. Okay. And it's a given, right? Everybody's going to have to take out something. But I think the other component of this is I often hear the, well, we don't have any money to go to college, right? My family doesn't have any money. And I know this is going to sound a little crazy, but I always turn and say, good, (laughs) because that's how you get lots of financial aid, right? Mm -hmm. So that should not be a barrier. Do not allow that to be a barrier. You apply first and then you see what you're going to be able to get. That's it. And the most important thing is work with the financial aid office, right? Just because you get a financial aid package doesn't mean that that's what you accept. Mm-hmm. Right? Say, say it again. Let me tell you, with, just because you get a financial aid package doesn't mean that that is what you have to accept. You can look at it. You can then call the financial aid office and then through that financial aid office, let's see what you can negotiate. Exactly. Very important. Very important. Yes, absolutely. So, so with that, uh, this question, I, I mean, I just think that that's so important that we can't ignore, you know, probably one of the biggest elephants in the room around higher education yep. is that the cost is just uh, astronomical. It's growing at a rate that is um, probably not sustainable. A lot of economists and other people, you know, have, are really predicting sort of the collapse of higher education uh, yep. because of the exponential cost. Yeah. Um, but, you know, essentially that has always been one of the many gatekeeping tools uh, yep. that keep people out of the system, out of accessing not only the knowledge, but the resources, the connections and the networks that are going to be able to advance them, you know, and be able to change the the trajectory for their own uh, family, you know, history. So I'll recognize all of these things and see them for what they are. Yes. Uh, Hurdles and obstacles. And if you can't go through it under around it, you know, find somebody to boost you over it. Exactly. Well, you know, it goes, honestly, Lamisha goes back to what I was saying earlier know your power. Mm-hmm. Right? If you are looking at you, a high achieving kid, and I'm looking at my grades and I'm going, wow, you know, these institutions cost a lot. I'm leveraging that because I have some power here. I have worked hard. Be confident about that. You are going to go to college. Mm-hmm. The money will come. You're going to go and find those resources, talk to those people, and allow them to guide you to make sure that money comes. Because it's there. It is there. Awesome. 
Don, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me again. I appreciate it. Yeah. And um, if you have any social media or other places, we can post the episode for your, for your own, you know, network of folks. Happy to cross promote that. And um, for our listeners, just want to encourage you to keep naming it. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, y'all y'all hit a lot of points there. I mean, y'all covered a lot of stuff. We sure did. So I just am really appreciative to Don. And one more time, the resource that he listed uh, was californiacolleges.edu. Y'all can check out that website if you want to learn more about college readiness, opportunities, scholarships, et cetera. Uh, but how about we go ahead and wind down this episode? <laughs> um. Okay. <laughs> Because you keep trying to, it out. It's, but it's not a wind down. Oh not, man! You're not. I just refuse. We haven't. All it's right. Not the, all right. All right. End it. All right. We're done. So Bedford, let's close out this episode. All right. So, uh, go ahead. For details on the topics mentioned in this episode, check out our website, namingitpodcast.com. Go ahead, scroll down, subscribe for the newsletter, and get all of the links, the resources, the articles, etc. Right. And if you like what you heard, leave us a review. And if you want to discuss a specific topic, send us a message or a tweet, and we'll try to incorporate it to the next episode. Remember, if you go onto the Acre app, you can leave us a voice message that we can actually put into the episode. So go out there and like uh, and let us tell us what you want to talk about. So yeah, please check us out on Anchor. And if you want to find us on social media, you can find me at Lanisha Hill on Twitter. Um, at DRBF Palmer and all of your, uh, your, your, your interwebs. And we always want to give a very special shout out to Music on Naming It provided by Lee England Jr., the sole violinist. All right, so that's it for naming it. Uh, Keep naming it, y'all. Peace.